must not fear. And fear is the mind killer. Be afraid. Be very afraid. I guess everyone's entitled to one good scare, huh? What's your favorite scary movie? You must first face your fears if you are to conquer them. The only thing to fear is fear himself. Hello, and welcome to Full Horror Show, the podcast where an animation nerd watches disturbing films while the movie buddy holds his hand. My name is Grant Letizia. And I'm Danny Clark. Here on Full Horror Show, we believe that what doesn't kill us makes us stronger, even when it comes to movies. Take horror films, for instance. People seem to love them or hate them, and they'll stick to that mindset, sometimes for life. So is it possible to turn a non-horror movie watcher into a fan? Well, on this show, we're going to find out. Each episode, Danny leads me through a classic horror or spook-adjacent film, and we see what happens. Speaking long-term, uh, either A, I'm going to become a braver person who's finally able to enjoy a scary movie, or B, I'm going to poop my big boy pants and just go back to watching Pixar movies. Today on the show, a really messed up one called Possession from 1981 that I had not heard about whatsoever. And then uh, you <laughs> you kicked it into my universe and now everything's messed up. <laughs> it is a messed up movie, man. Oh, wow. Like it's it's um, very hard to know where to start with this one, but we'll just, you know, begin uh, with the plot summary from IMDb and just get right into that. The, the bare bones summary says a woman starts exhibiting increasingly disturbing behavior after asking her husband for a divorce. Suspicions of infidelity soon give way to something much more sinister. Well, so I have an initial question. <laughs> Definitely for you. putting it okay. lightly. Putting it lightly. Hold on. Before the question, we have to have okay. we have to have okay. a blanket spoiler. Listen to me very carefully. Look out! The spoilers are coming. If you see the spoiler and it tells you what the movie is before you watch the movie, everything will be ruined. The spoilers are there. Get down. Get down. Get your ass to Jamie. Uh, yes. Schwarzenegger does not want you to get spoiled. That's why we play that. Because anything and everything is going to be spoiled after this point. Anyway, yeah. What's your initial first question? My initial question is, did you like the movie? That's the first thing I want to ask. <laughs> <laughs> so did you subjective. Like the movie? Uh, <laughs> no, it's okay. I want to know if you if you liked of it. Of course I liked it, Danny. Of course I liked yes. it. I mean, I felt uh, reviled at different points and, you know, confused. Uh, all sorts of emotions, but we'll definitely get into that. First, okay. uh, our the, the first important thing we got to get to is our monologuing bit. And I wanted to give it to you to start off because clearly you'll have something to say about this. I figured for three minutes straight. So why don't you go ahead and go for it? on you okay so when i first heard about this movie uh, i think i was a little bit afraid of it for some reason i don't know why i think i was expecting something like the exorcist because the name is possession and what exactly is being possessed is the question of this movie um it's very lynchian uh it's very much a creature feature but more than that it's an art house horror film because the narrative includes a lot of symbolism fascism, political statements. Uh, they're right on the border of East Berlin. Um, it's hard not to think about it being political in that way. And so the, the grip of communism um, that exists in East Berlin at that time uh, feels very much like what her character is going through, Isabella Ajani, uh, or Isabella Ajani, and Sam Neill. So Sam Neill, amazing. 
really cool to see him this young. He's just a dashing young man. Um, so it's about a man who is a spy and he comes back after being on some trip for a really long time and his bosses want him to do more. And he says, no, he's out. He's done. He find a replacement and uh, he's out of the game. And so he goes home to find out that his wife has been fucking around on him and it takes him a while to figure it out. But they fight like crazy. It, I had a hard time watching the marriage stuff. It was like Kramer versus Kramer, but in a in a David Lynch, uh, you know, exorcist kind of way, you know, like it was really scary. And just watching them fight was scary. Um, so, yeah, it wasn't just a creature feature. Um, and, and by the way, the U.S. cut when the movie was first released, this was also a video nasty, just like our last one with uh, Evil Dead. Um, and something happened. I don't remember the full story, but the writer agreed to let them cut the film down to release in the U.S. And they removed all the marriage stuff. And so it ended up being just a creature feature. So it didn't have the emotional hook, the emotional tone that we saw. OK, um, also, I thought it was really interesting that uh, Carlo Rimbaldi did the creature effects. He did E.T. I love E.T. He did Alien. I love Alien. He worked with Fellini and Pasolini. I think that's a really cool little little bit. Um, Isabella Johnny won the Khan Award for uh, Best Actress that year for her performance. And man, the subway scene. Oh, my God. <gasps> the subway scene. We'll get to that. Um, so, yeah, it's a spy thriller. It's Kramer versus Kramer. It's David Lynch. It's got a little bit of that movie with Kyle MacLachlan called The Hidden. Um, their apartment was a disaster. Everything's falling apart. Her apartment that she had. Um, we'll get into that too, but where the creature lived, it was crazy. So we're, I'm jumping all over the place and that's kind of how this movie is. It's, it's very confusing. The ending didn't make a lot of sense to me. So that's my three minutes. I am in total agreement with you because I don't really know where to start with this. It, it like, I think maybe some of the best movies that we're finding, uh, are our favorite to sort of watch that we're calling full horror show. It, completely seems to defy every genre because like you said it is simultaneously something like a, a weird um marriage drama at the beginning that feels very yep. serious and creepy and you're full i was fully convinced that the only thing that was going to happen was some type of awful like um you know spousal abuse or murder thing that was it that was all this was going to be abuse Oh, yeah, for sure. But I thought maybe that was the, the extent of it. That was all that was going to happen was someone's going to hurt somebody. And I, I don't want to see the kid get hurt and all this other stuff. And that's where my head all was the whole time. So actually hearing that they cut that out, I was wondering what they cut out for the, the theatrical U.S. version. That's sad because that stuff was so good and it, it so completely good. sucks you in. And I think it, it's almost like some artful misdirection because then when you watch it, you're just you're so in, invested, at least I was, in what was happening and the, the weird dynamic of all of that with Sam Neill being very, very intense. He was so um, like adamant in all his like his weird ways of trying to figure out where she had been. Not that it maybe wasn't justified, but he was so controlling and strange about the whole thing. And she was just like, leave me alone. And all of that was playing out. I don't know exactly how much of the running time was devoted to that, but I completely am with you in that that just like dominated most of it for me. And then I thought that could have been it, but then it segues somehow and it totally turns into this insane monster movie uh, that doesn't hold back in any way at all. And they show it 
everything. And that was so shocking and ridiculous to me that there was a creature. Now, the only thing that kind of spoiled it was it says in the title sequence, the creature effects are done by um, Romaldi, right? Um, so it was sort of like, I was like, there's a there's a thing in here. There's a Zamatronic or some kind of interesting. I didn't know what that was going to mean at all. But the fact that it wasn't just a, a small bit part, it was very heavily featured in the whole thing. And man, everything involving the squid thing was completely ridiculous. And the fact that it shifts and changes and turns into all these different forms and grows over time was madness. And and yeah, like the ending turns into some sort of insane kind of like spy thriller almost where they're running away from this sort of it feels almost like strange road rogue agents or something and there's that crazy chase sequence where sam knows riding his motorcycle like and there's an explosion i mean this has everything this movie has absolutely fucking everything in it like i was just blown out of the water and i mean uh, we'll get into more of the details obviously of all that but that's that's my three minutes on it it's just it is kind of hard to take in on the first viewing. Well, I want to, I want to comment on something you said. I think it's a masterpiece, dude. I really do. I think that it's probably one of the top three, top five horror movies of all time. I, and not only the performances, but like, you know, the writer didn't even know that they were going to have a creature that they were going to show the creature. He thought in the script, it was going to be implied. Maybe you just see some eyes in the dark or something. But when he showed up on set with, to help with rewrites, he saw the creature that Rambaldi had made. And had no idea that that's what it was going to be. And that creature is so scary. It's so gross. It's so grotesque. Yes. Ugh. It was just like wet and slimy. And the lighting was so good with it. And then, of course, it turns into it like morphs. And we'll get into that. Well, you know? I was I mean, that's the thing that really stays with you the most was I couldn't believe just how how well done the creature effects were and how realistic and insane it looked because some parts of it. Um, some parts of the, I guess the gore and the blood work was, it so it felt like it was sort of disparate. Like the the color of the blood was so crazily red in the beginning, like half of the movie. It felt like like anything where they cut themselves or they were doing weird stuff on their own, the blood kind of looked a little fake. But then everything with the creature was so insanely realistic. It was almost really hard to even like uh, grasp that this is what they they pulled off and came up with because it was just after alien. I mean, essentially it was very close and um, it was just so cool to see that they had something that they, they, they held the shot on that they could focus on that looked so bizarre. You just couldn't look away from it. And I just, the, I thought it was funny that I've never heard of this movie um, or seen clips of it or pictures of it just representing that creature before because it was totally new to me. I had no idea of like what it was or anything. That was great. That was such a wonderful surprise. Two quick notes about that were, um, I don't know if you heard the story that the director Zulowski and his producer, I forgot her name, they were in America and they saw Alien and he leaned over and said, I want the creature guy for this movie. Mm -hmm. And so that's how they got Rambaldi. Um, the other part was that when they came, when it came time to, to show the creature, to make the creature, like so much time went into the lighting of it and moving it in the bed and, and getting it right. I think there's such a precision to it. Um, and the writer was talking about how this movie has gained cult status in the last like 20 years because of the, I guess the D, the Blu-ray release and the DVD release hmm. before that it was banned in the UK and it was banned in parts of Europe. And so it just didn't really have a life. Um, the U S theatrical cut was kind of a flop because it didn't have all the marriage stuff. And the movie just kind of like 
died for a while and then it had a resurgence. So I think that's why we didn't know about it. I don't know, yeah. but it seems like that might be the case. Well, it's funny too, I guess the, I, like you're saying, the response was lukewarm. So maybe they didn't market it. I don't know very well, who knows? I mean, or maybe just people didn't know what to do with it, but what an experience just watching it. It's, it's crazy and really makes you feel something. I thought uh, the just, because you recommended a really great documentary just called The Making of um, yes. the film um, afterwards. And it's like short. And it was like an hour or whatever. It was amazing. And uh, I think the producer was made, mentioning in there, she was saying something to the effect of when it premiered, there was a very divisive response. Of course. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because people either were way into it or they were just mortified. And it, that was great to, to hear about because I was like, well, that sounds about right. That's kind of what you want. But I'm definitely on the side of that was insane. You know, you're just watching it with your mouth hanging over. <laughs> well, and I'll also say that the, the cinematography, one reason I think it's art house is because the way they use the camera, the cinematography yes. is, is handheld for most of the film. And he's moving through these small spaces, the apartment, and he's following Sam Neill running down staircases running through alleyways, moving through the apartment, into the kitchen, into another room and back again. And so much staging and blocking and choreography had to go into that to get it right, to shoot it and not show lighting rigs and not show and not show crew. And the camera wasn't small like today. I mean, this had to be a pretty big camera. So no, it's 35 mil. It had to be 35 millimeter. And he was like doing the Michael Bay, like circular moves. I know they were there were some really, really nice camera moves. It was unbelievable. So I think like, like, and there was a lot of angles down looking up at Sam Neill. Do you remember that, that scene in the meeting, how crazy and amazing that was, how the camera continued to circle around the table? Oh yeah. Was mesmerizing. And again, it's like Reservoir Dogs. Oh yeah, absolutely. It seemed so contemporary. The, the, the camera work was so interesting and awesome. Yeah. Oh man. I want to see, so after I saw this, not to jump too far ahead, but Zulowski has quite a career in Poland. And he has a three film pack that I want to check out. Um, it's like, where did I find that? Uh, the movie, The Devil, The Third Part of the Night, and On the Silver Globe. And it's a European release. So I want to try to get my hands on that because I want to see more from him, especially after hearing him talk, because he seems like, uh, like the same type of director as a Bergman or a Fellini, just very intelligent, very thoughtful, really took time with this film. So anyway, I just wanted to mention. No, that. for sure. I mean, I'm very interested now in his other films because it also seems like you mentioned um, he's thoughtful and intentional and he seems to like genre a lot. Yes. After something like this, you just want to see everything this guy has done. Like no question. Uh, so I have a question for you. Speaking of questions, um, why is the the first part of this film disturbing or why are relationships in a sense so scary and how do those vulnerabilities sort of play themselves out in our minds? Like how does this film in particular, like prey upon some of our fears? I felt claustrophobic in the beginning of the film because you're in this, this little apartment and the camera is so close to the characters and their relationship was so intense. I mean, he was slapping her around. They were cutting themselves. She was pushing meat down in a meat grinder and then taking the meat knife and like sawing herself with it. And then he did the same thing. Um, clearly, they are in an absolutely dysfunctional relationship. Um, anyone who's been in relationships, uh, you have your ups and downs. You never want to get to the point of it being this bad, mm -mm. right? No. And so this is our worst fear. 
to get to a point where divorce is imminent, infidelity is already happening, you're physically harming yourself and the other person. You're really, you're literally that bad for each other that that these things are happening. I think that is harder to watch and scarier to me than the second half of the film, to be honest. Yeah, it's tough too because of the kids' presence. That just is something that's so heartbreaking, you know, thinking about kids that come from broken homes. And you leave that kid by himself all the time. He, he's left by himself. Uh, it seemingly, they don't, it doesn't seem like well until the end. I don't know if he actually, does he drown himself in the bathtub? Is that what happens? Throughout the movie, the kid's taking the bath a lot. And Sam Neill's there with yeah, him. Yeah, he's scuba diving. And he's scuba diving. He's got his goggles. And he's looking for things in the water. The water seems to be a safe place for him. So what I kind of thought at the end was he kept saying, don't open the door. Don't open the door. Don't open the door. Yeah. There's a moment at the end of the film when the creature has now turned into a doppelganger of Sam Neill, mm-hmm. um, replicating him, becoming him, and then killing him so that. Now this evil entity, we suppose, maybe he's not. Maybe the Samuel that dies, the Samuel we've seen throughout the whole movie, is the evil one. And maybe this creature is replacing him, is actually a demonic angel of some sort. I don't know. Um, but he kills him, and then he goes to the house where the kid is. To be his new dad. <laughs> yeah, and the kid knows he that knows, like something is up, right? So the kid dives into the water. I don't think he died. I just think he was hiding, you know? What do you think? Well, yeah, maybe. I hope he was holding his breath. It's just, it was weird because they made a big deal of the kid running to the bathroom and he goes in the tub and then the camera just holds there for a long time. And I don't know. It just seems like the kid is very still in the water. And it was, I was like, if that's really what happened, oh my God, even worse. Because that's what a statement you can make about that. Like this kid is writing to potentially kill himself rather than be raised by these crazy people. Like that's something. But uh, regardless of what he does in the end is the, the character does. I mean, the kid doesn't seem affected by it too much. It's so weird and disconnected, the whole family relationship. Like, she's in the kitchen all the time. He goes in there just to basically be like, we got to talk. We got to talk. We got to talk. We got." And she just, just like, leave me alone. And at different times, I would find myself identifying with both people. Like, I think in any relationship, sometimes you occupy both spaces where you'll be the one that wants to talk or you'll be the one that's like, eh, I don't, I don't want to do that right now. And it's natural to sometimes find yourself on both sides. And I could see at some level both sides a little bit. It was weird, you know? I mean, obviously, it was incredibly strange how we started seeing a pattern where she would leave and I think be gone for weeks at a time and then come back like everything was normal. And he'd just be like, what? But Sam Neill was gone for weeks at a time, we're assuming, as the spy. So like I was, I had a hard time buying into that a little bit, honestly, with the kid, just because it seemed a little far-fetched that the kid would accept both in that way. Yeah, like- how strange that is totally yeah it it was weird it was like there's no way this kid is okay he has ptsd already (laughs) it also reminded me of danny from the shining because his parents are very like his father's very abusive his mother is in a dangerous relationship she feels trapped and danny suffers from it as a result and he goes off into his imagination and we we get more introspective with danny in the shining and i I, I don't know, maybe there's a, another film out there where uh, this kid's world is explored a little bit more, but I think he was just a um, collateral damage, you know? She's so good in this movie. She's so good. I mean, it was hard not to just completely be convinced of her feelings as, as, a, as a, you know, a slighted or just, you know, completely over its spouse, like, a hundred percent. She absolutely deserved to win any award for this. I mean, her acting in the subway scene alone is 
Unbelievable. I love that you're hyping her up because it's amazing. What was your take on the subway scene? She seems like she's just a jilted housewife and she perfectly nails that. So you're like, okay, but the movie's called Possessed. So I don't know when that thing hits, you're like, this is it. She just has a demon in her. <laughs> you're like, it's just a plain old demon. <laughs> That's all. But it's, I mean, from the, the I, I believe what's an uninterrupted take of the whole thing to... I mean, her ridiculous just facial expressions and whatever sound she's making. I have not heard some of those sounds coming out of a human being in my life. Like it was just kind of unforgettable because of just her sheer amount of like animal energy that she put into that performance was ridiculous. Like something just to see. You're just like, I, I don't even I don't even know what this What's going on here? <laughs> well, so this was a turning point in the movie because it was before we start really seeing the creature. And I, th- I think that this moment, my jaw hit the floor because it was relentless. It was, it was voyeuristic. It was, it reminded me of irreversible when it's like so disturbing. I, I, I want to look away and it keeps on going and it lasts for minutes and minutes and minutes. And I'm a little bit confused as to whether or not she was birthing the creature in that moment or she was having a miscarriage or not because she does break eggs on the wall and then she sits down on the floor and proceeds to bleed out and all kinds of other weird stuff comes out and she's crying and screaming and drooling and oh my God, man, I've never seen anything like that before. And it, it was haunting. So I think, I think the idea of it being a miscarriage, even if that's not, necessarily literally what needed to happen it felt symbolic it felt like everything was breaking down for her everything was breaking apart what's interesting is the whole sequence doesn't happen in real in like present time it happens in a flashback yes she's describing for samuel's character she's like saying i had to get it out of me i had to do i had to like expunge it basically and that was what i needed to do and i was like oh that's so interesting like i i think that she was like getting rid of it or, or giving life to it. I'm not exactly sure. Yeah. I mean, I don't think it doesn't even seem like the director kind of knows, or he doesn't really want to clarify it, which is nice. He, he sort of, I think the one thing in the documentary that you sent the, that he seems to hint at is that it could even be read as something like this is simply the act of creating. And when you create something like an ideology or a political view, or even if you uh, change your mind on something, like as people shift and change throughout their life, they make something and that that thing, whatever it is, a belief system, a talent, a skill or something, it takes on a life of its own and becomes something else when it leaves you. And basically it's like it, you manifest through your passion or through whatever it is, something. And that something basically becomes real in life. And I thought that was the most interesting kind of perspective on it. Because that's exactly what happens, as you pointed out. I didn't realize there was such a clear dividing line, but I, th- I guess there is. Because after she has that scene, that's when everything starts kind of, <laughs> uh, the metamorphosis starts taking place. Yes, yes. Very Kafka-esque also, by the way. I love how they don't explain any of it. It's so <laughs> wonderful as yeah. the best thing. Uh, because it's so confusing when he's like, first it's attached to the wall. Could you see the eyes in the hallway when it was attached to the wall? I don't think I even knew what those were. I saw the eyes the second time. <laughs> it's so dark. The only highlight is is like the pupil and the eye. Yeah. 
And and so I knew like it was going to it was going to form some type of human, but then you see it in the corner and it has grown into like this giant phallic looking creature <laughs> with two eyes on the sides. Yes. Like a, <laughs> yes. like a squid or something. I have to see it again. It was so bizarre looking. And then it was in the bed. Oh man. And yeah. it was like more octop- octopus like, you know, cuz it had like tentacles and they were kind of flying everywhere and it was like open. And then we see it fucking her later in the movie and it's Sam Neill's head. It has like the back <laughs> of his head. Yeah. But it's literally like it's like tentacle porn. I mean, it, I I I think that's kind of what it looked like. But he said he wanted H.R. Geiger. It's 100 percent. It's Geiger. I yeah. mean, it totally yeah. is. And Lovecraftian. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh Wow. What a shot, though. What a scene like. I mean, there's no way to really. <laughs> There's no way to really encapsulate this. Like you're, we're right there with Sam Neill. When you come in, you're like, "Oh, this is happening." I'm hearing, she's been hinting at what's going on the whole time. Now I'm gonna walk in on it, and you're like, "Don't, don't go in on." It. And he's like, "You see that look in his face? It's like it's maybe revulsion. It's maybe like interest. It's maybe like okay." <laughs> it's like, you, know what I'm saying? <laughs> you know, it's oh, it's so messed up, dude. But then he sets the tables for this spy thriller chase scene. Yeah, and then it changes. Yeah. And and he becomes like I'm gonna I'm gonna do whatever do the the spy superhero thing. He all of a sudden gets like very defend. They both do. They both get defensive. They have to defend the religion. Isn't that funny how they say it? They're like we have to defend the faith that we have, which the faith is like this crazy creature. And they're both like psychos or or, or uh, you know cultists, obviously at this point. But they bring the creature. I love how they bring the creature into their home. And I was like, don't leave it with the kid. <laughs> it's like. <laughs> just put this terrifying creature over in the side room, you know, but put him up in the guest room. It's fine. It'll be so, fine. No It'll big deal. <laughs> yeah. The Airbnb. For the oh creature. man. And then, but it's great because when Sam Neill finally, they reveal his new human form as, as the doppelganger, he's got these black eyes. Yeah. I noticed that instead of the nice blue Sam Neill eyes, you know? Um, and the way he kills him is so great. And then the escape on the staircase, on the staircase. And what's the deal with the guy with the pink socks? Do you have any reading on that? Because I've heard people talk about the guy with the pink socks, and I just don't understand what the hell the deal is. So you're saying that. the gentleman who like contacts him again and says, we want you to come back, that guy? Yeah, because he comes back to him when there's when he's over the river. Yeah, He's like standing on the bridge yeah. and he comes back. It's the same guy from the beginning of the movie because we see the guy with the pink socks twice. And then after the doppelganger kills Sam Neill and escapes... The camera goes down to the bottom of the staircase and you see the man with the pink socks running upstairs. The first thing I thought was with especially with the ending in the last act, it, it seemed as if I, I don't know. My brain was thinking something along the lines of this is some sort of conspiracy and there's this weird agency like men in black and that guy's in charge of it and he knows what's going on. So he's always known. Yes, exactly. And it's probably just because I've seen too many movies. Just thought about it like this. Oh, is this like Jason Bourne program? It's a program. Okay, so we're in this. We're on the same page with this. I, okay, yeah. I'm not the only one, but I no. don't. I think that's got to be too literal of a read. It has to I be. I thought. I thought maybe they set up Sam Neill because mm-hmm. he's refusing to continue with the agency. Yeah. While he was gone, they somehow influenced the wife to start having this affair with this other man, and they got their claws in her. They possessed her somehow Mm -hmm. and caused this chain of events to occur, knowing that she would create this creature somehow and bring it to life so that it would kill Sam Neill. And now it can be this like superhuman version of him. 
but I don't know why it would be that. I just, that's kind of where my head went. Well, because I don't know what you think about this, but are we not meant to think that the perfect teacher lady is her, right? That's her doppelganger. Right. 100%. This has already happened once. It is played by the same actress. Like, I'm not just making that up. That was Isabella Johnny playing the teacher, too. And so Sam Neill knows it, knows it's the same person, but doesn't know it. He he's like, what? Uh, okay. And See, I thought maybe it. that could have been in his head. And that, 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 that was like his idea of, of the perfect wife of what she should be like, you know, in his That's mind. That's a good point. Yeah. And so for us as the audience, we see her as he sees her, which is like his wife, but in a more, um, like more of what he wants. Yeah. You know? Yeah. No, that could be, that could definitely be it. Or it but could I mean, literally be a doppelganger. I don't know. Well, yeah, it was weird because there's that's the thing is there's all this stuff flying around like it could be is she possessed and when she's possessed, she's acting different or is this really a different person? Is it a doppelganger? Is it someone else? It, it, yeah, it none of that's really made clear, which is kind of marvelous because now you can think about it this way and certainly be confused. And I don't know, like <laughs> Pink Sox guy. I don't know. Yeah. Well, and, you know, he said himself in the documentary he wanted to make a political statement and the movie does take place on the wall. And I don't know if you remember hearing this part, but like when they filmed the guys with binoculars on the other side of the wall, they, that, those were real shots. Those were not actors. Yeah. That was them watching them filming a movie across the wall, mm-hmm. wondering what the hell they're up to. <laughs> Exploding the building. And so I thought that that was also really interesting in this kind of decrepit part of West Berlin. Like the, the apartment that she had was falling apart. I mean, the the walls were falling apart. You oh, know? Yeah. Like the place looked terrible. Mm-hmm. Um, just like their apartment was a disaster. And their clothes, too. It just, it felt like so much was out of their control. Like they were not only possessed by this creature, they were not only possessed by this feeling between them, but also of the government right next door or this agency that he worked for. And so like my head was spinning thinking about that. It's just a very complex film. There's a lot of layers. Yes, so many layers to this film. Definitely more to break down. We will come back after a short break now and talk more possession and what the heck is going on in that broken down apartment across town with those crazy people. We'll be back after this. I've completed my job. That's why we want to rehire you. It's out of the question. And what would be the reason for your refusal? Family. (laughs) Almost. What was that about? She's looking and making dead eye contact with him while she has sex with the squid. And she's saying almost. I don't know. Dude, I have no idea. (laughs) But how about that score? The music is unbelievable. It's so 80s. It's so haunting. It's so electronic. It's it's amazing. I love the music of this. There was a couple sections, one of them being where the the pink sock guy comes back, where they just kicked him with this like 80 synth score that was upbeat. And I was like, what are they doing? It was so funny. Yeah, I thought it was really well used. The score was. Well, that's why I think maybe they were the good guys. Maybe pink socks, dude, is maybe the agency are good guys and they're fighting the evil Sam Neill 
you know, maybe Sam Neill was, they wanted him dead all along. It you know? could be, it could be. Uh, but yeah, we are uh, talking about Possession, the crazy ass movie. And um, wanted just to take one step back because I know we're covering everything and it's it's marvelous because we haven't had a chance to, you know, actually download anything with each other about this. So it's it's amazing. But let's talk just as much as we can, I guess, about uh, Andre Juvowski, like this director. We, we touched only briefly, I guess, on how we hadn't really seen much of his filmography before. But I mean, I guess what's what's the story with this guy? Like he's from Poland. We know that. I got to be honest. I don't actually know that much about him because I hadn't seen anything by him until I saw this. He's made 17 films. So that's a pretty good filmography. I mean, Kubrick only made like 10. And so a lot of these I haven't been able to find. And I was hoping to watch the third part of the night, The Devil, and On the Silver Globe, because those seem to be the the big ones. Um, I do know that he was going through a divorce uh, right before making this movie. And so it did kind of remind me a little bit of Cronenberg in that respect. When he made The Brood, he had just gone through a divorce. Oh, that's true. Uh huh. Um, and I, earlier I was going to mention that there's a German film called The Lives of Others that this reminded me of. Not because of narrative or plot or horror or anything like that. Simply, have you seen The Lives of Others? Mm-mm. Um, it's about uh, the Stasi uh, government in East Berlin and how they would sit upstairs in the attic above people's apartments to listen to their lives. And if they heard anyone talking out of line against the government, then they would make you disappear. <laughs> and it was a really sad movie. And all of those shots of the wall, all of those shots of the, of the binoculars... And just the idea that you're always looking over your shoulder, because even though they were in West Berlin, it still felt like they were trapped. Yeah, clearly, he, you know, he's he's had a lot of his his life influenced by the politics of the region. Well, being Polish, you know, he was behind the Iron Curtain and he left. And so he, he escaped. Well, I don't know about escape. He left Poland. And he started making films in, in Western Europe. Hmm. One also says that his feature, The Devil, was banned in, in communist Poland. And so he went to France. And he spent, when he returned to Poland to try to make On Silver Globe, that's when he got shut down. The work was interrupted and destroyed by the authorities. So he moved to France and, and made possession. Hmm. So I think it's interesting that as an Eastern European, he came over and decided to make these films that had a political statement. It's pretty ballsy. Yeah. And I mean, I, I really want to see this on the Silver Globe now because just the, the, the stills or just a few scenes from it look insane. It looks crazy, like a really, really interesting, again, almost not to, well, I guess you can draw a comparison. It almost looks like a Kubrick kind of thing with some really interesting like astronaut suits and other stuff and just some really insane looking visuals going on. Um, so, I mean, similar, similar to this one. I mean, there, there's some shots in this, this movie that are so interesting and good in their own right. They could, you could just take it and frame it somewhere. I feel like, cause they were just so well done and interesting. There were moments of Bergman in this. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. the way he would sit with the camera in her, especially in her apartment, it reminded me a little bit of through a glass darkly, some of the shots. Um, I just think there was so much emotion in the midst of all of this chaos that that's what really hooked me because if I can empathize with the character, even though I, even if I don't understand them and even if I don't agree with what they're doing, like I felt her pain 
And to an extent, I felt his pain. And I think it was harder to empathize with Sam Neill, truly, because he was so much of a monster. And I think that's why he became a monster, essentially. You know, would you agree with that? Yeah, or in terms of like which one is easier to identify with. Yes. Yeah. I mean, she has her moments there where she's like, I guess she's hanging out with Heinrich and he's like shooting a videotape of her and stuff. And she's being like super mean to those poor, uh, poor ballerina. The ballerinas. Yeah. That was difficult to watch. She looked at the camera. Well, I know she was like, oh, see what I'm doing? This is what this is what we're about, basically. And I was like, oh, my God, that's. I feel so bad for those ballerinas right now. Um, <laughs> I mean, it also I, reminded me of like uh, Black Swan of, uh, or of Suspiria. Yeah, that's, it did. Yeah, that's true of Suspiria. I mean, it seems like at this point, if you sign up for, you know, doing ballet class in a movie, you're going to get a really, really harsh teacher <laughs> no matter what. Yeah. There's no such yeah. thing as a nice ballerina teacher. They just don't exist. <laughs> no. um, but anyway, I mean, tippy toes, get on your tippy toes. <laughs> it's weird because it's like she has this segue where I guess she goes with with Heinrich and does this other intellectualist kind of stuff. And he encourages all that. And he's almost encouraging her to reach out and become something else, which is maybe why she already, you know, moves away from the Sam Neill character and, and everything. Um, yeah, it's hard not to identify with that because, you know, she's she seems like she's searching for something and trying to grow and change. And it kind of just feels like Sam Neill is sort of just. Uh, a limp rock and then he just is so dogged with his uh his insistence i guess that she just kind of like give him the answer that he wants and yeah i mean i agree he he's he's the one who's the problem <laughs> the problem i don't know i'm like either way she's she she's got issues uh we need to we need to get her some prozac something well, but he would escalate things he'd walk into the apartment and escalate every single time she's just trying to make breakfast and she and yeah. it's like he should know where they already are, right? They're not they're not in a good place. But he just goes in there and then starts barraging her with all these questions. Like, well, when are we gonna be together again? When are we gonna it's just like just let it go, man. He's a moth to a flame. He just needs to learn to stop. <laughs> it seems like a lot of times I'll try to understand like complex emotions and keep asking questions about why, like, you know, the person I'm in a relationship might with might feel a certain way. And she might not want to respond right then. And I keep asking. So I do think like this is an extreme version of that, you know, and how it can spiral and derail. And it's a warning sign to all of that. Yeah, you can see it and you're like, don't do it. This is why this doesn't this is why this doesn't work. Like this whole dynamic of if things aren't happening the way that you want them to, to just continuously try to make the other person give you an answer that's going to satisfy you. It's like, well, but this isn't this things have changed already and things have moved on and this is not something that you can control. And I guess that's what it comes down to is the control aspect. You just made me think of scenes from a marriage also by Bergman, which is another great um, recommendation that would go along with this as a potential double feature. <laughs> Although that's <laughs> oh. a long movie and I would probably start with scenes from a marriage and then roll to this. Cause then it just goes full horror show. Um, also you mentioned Heinrich earlier. I want to mention one more thing. Do you think that his mother killed herself? Heinrich's mom. Oh, yeah, she did. She swallowed those pills and then just laid down. I felt so bad for her, man, because she calls and she's like, I know, I know he'll be back. I know he'll he always comes back and like and, he, and he's not. He's in that fucking toilet in a bar, which we haven't talked about, by the way. Heinrich's death was epic death scene. That was ridiculous. It was. And I already mentioned Irreversible and how 
this film reminds me of Gaspar Noe a little bit. Enter the Void, dude, when he's in the fucking toilet laying there and the camera drifts up away from his body and starts floating around the city. Totally reminded me of that shot of Heinrich's head in the toilet and he flushes the fucking toilet. Like, what a way to go. And he starts like ditching drugs. No, that was unexpected for me. <laughs> yeah. Because he agrees to meet him. But this is like the new Sam Neill. The Sam Neill <laughs> who doesn't care anymore. Yeah. Well, now he's seen the apartment. Now he knows the stakes are much higher and that there is another force that is there that has to be reckoned with. And so now it seems at this stage, he just wants to protect his wife. He wants to keep her from getting in trouble, right? I mean, I don't know if I even read it that way. I kind of took it as this is him taking his sort of toxic desire to control and just running with it as an excuse almost. Because he tells he tells Heinrich, he's like, I used to be afraid of you, but I'm not anymore. Well, but so why did he take the body out of the apartment and like go to such lengths to put it in the car and drive it back to his apartment. I, I mean, I guess he does try to hide it. And it almost it seemed to me like he was trying to protect her because he saw how now now it's been revealed to him that she is not the one doing this, that she is fucking crazy and she's possessed by this creature is what I kind of was my reading anyway, because he sees the head or the body in the fridge and he takes the body and he puts it in the bag and he puts it in the car. He blows up the fucking apartment, you know? Oh, yeah. That, but the whole I guess the thing that's interesting is the whole time that the Samuel Garris is doing that, he's acting deranged. It's It seems like he goes from being a person who's uh, being <laughs> yeah. passive and just asking questions to doing all this stuff and taking maybe more action. Whether that's a good or bad thing, uh, who knows? But I think it's interesting in his character. He goes from being like maybe feeling helpless in the situation to... I guess empowered in a weird way. I'd agree with that for sure. Yeah. Heinrich is the only one talking any damn sense. Heinrich is like, there's a monster in there. She's crazy. He's like, what are we going to do? We have to tell someone. And Samuel's like, no, no, we're not going to tell anyone. I'm going to kill you. So you shut the fuck up. (laughs) I mean, it's just interesting that like that the Heinrich is he's like the voice of reason, even though he's so out there and so spacey. And so, you know, he's, he's clearly the representation of like this, this, uh, this you know, intellectual elite who just can kind of do anything he wants. He's a hippie, you know. Fuck boy. And yeah, but at the same time, he like sees the monster and he does what every other normal person would do. And is like, holy shit, we have to like do something. And then Sam Neill is, you know, no. But even if they like, I guess the only way to destroy that monster would have been to blow it up. But like, or total dismemberment back, back to Evil Dead. I don't know. Because, you know, it's oozing like it just because just because you, <laughs> if you destroy it, I feel like it's going to come right back. I don't know. Yeah. It, I mean, and it came out of nothing. So she like apparated it or whatever. Yeah. Uh, so here's a good big question that I had, I think, about this whole thing. Does evil come from uh, without from around us or does it come from within? I think she says evil is just a reflection on goodness, I think. Or maybe it's the opposite. But I guess the point being you know, everybody has that yin and yang inside them. You have the possibility of always doing these things. I think the director himself says something about like, well, maybe, you know, if the wall is there and there's all this evil stuff happening around, you can't really help but make it sort of like part of your own relationship or part of what's happening. I just think, do you philosophically agree with that? Like that the evil stuff is around you and we can't as humans help but sort of just absorb it? Or is the evil coming from from this guy? <laughs> I would say it's a little bit of both. I mean, uh-huh. 
I think it's a spectrum and and everyone makes a moral choice to be good or evil. And anyone has the capacity to to do something evil. It's the question of whether or not you're going to do it. Right. And most of us are not inclined and would say that we wouldn't. But, you know, when you're in a position of vulnerability or you're in a position of you feel like there's no choice but to commit an act that would be evil in order to get out of a situation that you put yourself in. Some people who may not think that they would do it might do it. I think back to, um, you know, movies like Pusher, uh, especially Pusher 2. There's a scene where like this guy owes a bunch of money to somebody and they say, uh, well, you owe me five grand. Take this gun and go rob a bank. <laughs> and and it's because he owes money to bad people, but he wouldn't have ever thought about robbing a bank. Mm. And so I think about that, like that's a moment of vulnerability where you are so desperate, you're in trouble, whatever. And so you commit an act that is wrong in order to get out of the situation. Uh, Godard said, you know, in order to have a movie, you need a girl and a gun. I mean, why do we need the gun? Why do we need death? Why do we need violence? I think this movie makes you ask some of those questions. I mean, it, it's kind of almost like as it turns out to turn the entire paradigm on its head, she's not just cheating with a regular person. She's cheating with this <laughs> crazy squid octopus creature that she manifested out of her loneliness. And that's that's doing the job. But you could ask the moral question, though, right? Not that we're going to be moralistic about it either way, but you could you could justifiably, I guess, say, well, was that the right thing to do for her to do that? to choose the octopus creature over Sam Neill, knowing he's maybe going to come back. I don't, I don't know, but it is interesting. Cause it's like, it's like she cheated, but did she really, <laughs> if she made the thing, <laughs> if she made the thing herself, I don't know. It's interesting to think about it that way. Well, she was already cheating on him with, with Heinrich. Oh, well that's true. That's true. So by the way, you, you made me think to look up some quotes and it's funny you asked that question because here's some quotes from Anna. I can't exist by myself because I'm afraid of myself because I'm the maker of my own evil. Goodness is only some kind of reflection upon evil. There it was. That was that was the line. I remember that one. I was like, ooh, that's like the thesis of this movie, I feel like. And this is the quote right before the uh, um, the subway scene. What I miscarried there was Sister Faith, and what was left is Sister Chance. So I had take I had to take care of my faith to protect it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's still very confusing. I'm not exactly sure. And then at one point she's rambling in that video that he, the Heinrich takes over. She's like, is it faith or is it chance? Is it chance or is it fate? And she's like losing it. It is interesting that she is spending that time, like trying to figure out, you know, these important big questions in the world. And yeah, I guess that kind of drives her a little bit insane as I think it really would all of us, if we try to get to the answers, cause uh, not necessarily a lot of answers. Here's, here's, you're going to like this. This is one good one. Okay. We are all the same, different words, different bodies, different versions, like insects, meat. And she stabs Heinrich. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, like insects. I, that was a good one, too. Very very Lynchian. I mean, but that's also interesting. So she makes then the moral choice, I suppose, to uh, she it, even if she made this, you know, this creature or whatever out of her own desire, or her own longing, she totally chooses to murder people. I guess feed it to him. That's what we're assuming happens. Is it eat so that it can so that it can become a human? It can become because the meat, yeah, the meat grinder, become the better, the new Sam Neil. The new Sam Neil, yeah. Just, I love the again in that in that documentary interviewer asked Rowski like, "Why? What's happening with this movie now? 
you know, why is it taken off? And if it has a resurgence, why is it happening? How do you feel about that or something? We don't get the question, but he kind of just talks a little bit, pontificates, as it were, on that. And I love his answer because it was just really nice to hear from, a, you know, the director of something that's maybe getting a second life. He says something to the effect of the certain emotions are what make films still seem fresh years and years and years later. Um, there are improbable films. I think this is what he said. He said, there these films are alive still and there's hope in the fact that they stay. I just thought that was really cool. I love that. Yeah, I mean, he wasn't even being, you know, super like, oh, and these are my movies. He was just he was just saying like amongst the classics, whatever they are for you, uh, there's just these movies that, that continue to come back and maybe they find, you know, a new audience or whatever, but something to do with uh, the truth to the emotions or the truth of the humanity that you're seeing there it sticks around and it's almost like nobody has control over that. Nobody can really manipulate that. It kind of does it on its own. Yeah. I mean, I think it's a really beautiful film while being disturbing, you know, it rocked me, man. I, I really, I wasn't, that's why I hit you up as soon as I saw it. And I said, you've got to watch possession. You got to watch it now, watch it now, you know? And it was the right one to talk about. It's a little bit confusing to talk about. I mean, cause we've been a little bit ADD or a little bit all over the place and that's fine. I think it's that kind of movie. I think it ta- there's so many layers. There's so many layers to this film. And you have to see it, I think, to actually even know really what the point is. Or Yeah. But even then, it doesn't matter because now I, I kind of need to watch it again. <laughs> That's how I felt. Because I want to see the creature again, number one. And then I want to hear those lines again that were so good the first time around. And then just appreciate the staging and, like you said, the blocking and the camera work even more. Some of the compositions, which are just so really, really, really good. Well, and one more, one more shout out to Rimbaldi because something about the way they lit this creature. Because the producer talked about how long it took. It would take like a day to set up the shots. Didn't really notice it. No. Which is cool. Like it was very naturalistic, the lighting. He Mm -hmm. was under the bed, moving the arms of the creature. (laughs) (laughs) At one point, though, it was so impressive when he was leaning up against the wall. And you're like, is that a guy in a suit? Is it not a guy in a suit? I can't tell. (laughs) I can't tell what I'm looking at. Um, Did you hear them say that they came to uh, they, they they brought the creature through customs? And yes, customs opened the box, opened the casket and was like, whoa, what is this? (laughs) Yeah, full of horrible like tentacles. And they just kind of smirked and were like, yeah, go on. You're fine. (laughs) It's a good film. I think anybody should watch it. (laughs) I mean, maybe it's not a first time date movie. Definitely not a first time date movie, dude. I'm not going to show my wife this movie ever. No way. (laughs) But if you want to be wowed, I think you check this out. And that's a wrap. Our show is produced and edited by me, Grant Letizia. You can find us on Instagram at Full Horror Show. You can also visit us at fullhorrorshow.com where you can listen to all back episodes. If you have any feedback or have a recommendation for a movie that you think goes Full Horror Show, we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at fullhorrorshow at gmail.com. Finally, if you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. So until next time, stay spooky, my friends. Thanks, Danny. Thank you.